Hi, this is Dr. Adrian. Welcome to Health Bite, the podcast where we explore all things health and wellness. Hey there, Health Bite podcasters. In anticipation of my upcoming book, Hungry for More, I'm taking a shift in the podcast to take a deep dive into our hunger. As always, we know there are many reasons we eat, physiologic hunger being just one of them. Hunger, of course, can be emotional, even spiritual. And overweight or not, our relationship with food is symbolic of our relationship with ourselves. How do we care for ourselves? Are we worthy of the time and attention required for that care? What boundaries are necessary to support the healthy relationships with others and with ourselves? And what true longing is our desire for food signaling? Our reckoning with food can be a way of opening up to these significant questions. And a change in our relationship with food can be a spark for broader change, creating a rippling effect to other areas of our lives. As always, my goal is to provide you with small, actionable health bites to support you towards your path towards physical, mental, and emotional well-being. In the next several episodes, we will dive deep together to explore these hungers more fully. I will draw from evidence-based medicine, scientific research, patient stories, and personal experiences to help you understand the universal stories and science behind our hungers. And I encourage you to head over to hungryformore.net where you can download an excerpt from my book, Hungry for More, Stories and Science to Inspire Weight Loss from the Inside Out. Now let's dig in. On today's episode of Health Bite, I speak with Robin Goldberg. She is a certified eating disorder registered dietitian and supervisor through International Association of Eating Disorder Professionals. She is also the author of The Eating Disorder Trap, a guide for clinicians and loved ones. On this episode, Robin and I talk about eating disorders, body image, intuitive eating, and the importance of identifying our true hunger. Let's dive in. Welcome back to Health Bite. I'm so excited to have you here, Robin. It's great to see you. Great to see you, Adrian. Thank you so much for inviting me. You know, this is such a evergreen topic, right? Always important, but so much more so right now on the heels of a little bit over a year of the pandemic, where we've noticed that the numbers of eating disorders have increased, right? And also, I think people who had been in remission were kind of upended again as a result of all the stressors that they were facing. Very true. I mean, to respond to something you had said, so for a person to be recovered, that takes many, many years. But to work towards their journey of recovery, maybe an individual had been in what they would perceive in a place of recovery, working towards being recovered. But the stressors of the last year, from the perspectives of losing control of seeing friends, going to school, being able to travel with family, go to a restaurant, all these elements that have been taken away from each and every one of us. For individuals that do not have a solid foundation in their recovery, it's been very common for people to have their eating disorder return and have that voice become very dominant and loud in their lives. Yeah. And I wonder if you know, like so many things in life, there's never really like this bookend that closes the door on that journey. It's something that people deal with lifelong and it may change, right? In the way it presents itself or the severity of it, but it is something that I imagine, and I know from my work at the other end of the spectrum is a long-term or a lifelong journey. 
it is a lifelong journey, but also it's having, for example, for someone who struggles with an eating disorder, the idea of having a team that specializes in eating disorders is very, very important to get to a place where it's not the ongoing thought narrative in their mind. So that team consists with an eating disorder trained registered dietitian, an eating disorder trained mental health care provider, an eating disorder trained internist or pediatrician, as well as potentially an eating disorder trained psychiatrist if medications are recommended. Yeah, like it, it really is the whole team approach, right? So we talked a little bit about the different eating disorders and, and you know, binge eating disorder is something that I see a lot at the other end of the spectrum. I think when we think of eating disorders, our minds do go often towards anorexia, which you can speak to. But talk a little bit about, you know, what are the most common eating disorders and yeah, maybe we can get into that a little bit. So the most common eating disorder that's not discussed is binge eating disorder. And 60% of women that have troubled relationships with food and body struggle with binge eating disorder. And 40% of men who have unresolved relationships with food and body struggle with binge eating disorder. And a person can exist in any body shape or size and struggle with not just binge eating disorder, but any type of eating disorder. They don't have to live in a larger body or look quote unquote, emaciated, they can appear normal. They could, I'm putting rabbit ears normal or be an athlete. And unfortunately, the media portrays people to appear in a certain manner, which is not necessarily the case. It affects all genders, all ages, all body shapes and sizes, all different cultures. And I think that's very, very important to be able to expose individuals to that knowledge, which is one of the reasons I wrote my book, The Eating Disorder Trap, to be able to debunk the myths that people are not informed about. Can you talk a little bit about the myths around binge eating disorder and maybe just start with defining it? Because I think binging is a term that we kind of throw around. And so, but there's a clinical definition for binge eating disorder. So binge eating disorder, I think the classic, how I hear people describe it, which is not necessarily cases, they perceive it's a person in a larger body going to a fast food establishment or sitting in their car. And it could be, like I was listening to a client who was telling me that, you know, she binged on the big baking sheet of roasted Brussels sprouts that she made. She was feeling anxious and stressed and overwhelmed. And it's being able to suppress any kind of uncomfortable feeling where a person is trying to escape and to be able to be with themselves is very, very difficult. So it's not about what the food choice is that a person's eating, but they're eating a concentrated amount of food in a very short period of time rapidly and oftentimes moving from one item to another. But it could be like in, in this case, this person, this was, you know, the only item she had in the house. And, and then after the fact went to sleep, but you know, oftentimes it could move on to another food choice. And again, it's not about what the food choice is, it's the behavior and, you know, the psychological process that a person's going through to get to that place. So would you say that part of the kind of definition of it is what's driving the binge or what's driving the eating? It's not so much to your point, like binging on chips per se, like your example is Brussels sprouts, which 
you know, we don't typically think of as a binge, but there you go. You experienced it in a client, but what's driving it? Correct. It's what's driving it. And I mean, it could be chips, but also it's the idea that the discomfort of the emotion that is occurring is too much to handle and deal with. So a person's looking for escape and that's been their coping mechanism. It has, it has been their way to provide comfort for themselves and it has served a purpose for them in their lives, or it wouldn't be a behavior that an individual would engage in. Can you also speak to, you know, like classically it's defined as like a certain amount of calories or the number of times per week or doing it alone. Is that relevant in your world in any way? I mean, I'll listen to clients, Adrian, that talk about like today, another person was speaking about, oh, I got together with friends and we always associate watching the Academy Awards with binging. And it could be like you associate certain people in your life or those that are like eating friends, but also for many, it could be, you know, eating alone or with others in their life and also what's available. Or I have clients that have um, Postmates liver because they feel too shameful to go to the market or to get takeout from a restaurant or I was listening to another person today who was telling me they were waiting for their neighbors in their apartment building to go in the house because they were too embarrassed that one of the fast food establishments was going to deliver to her. So there's so much shame centered around it. A person may or may not be with other people. And, you know, when you're speaking about, you know, the number of calories, I mean, it's really the behavior. I feel like these other parts are irrelevant because there could be smaller binges or could be larger. I mean, there's so many levels and, you know, degrees of it. Yeah. And I think to your point, the shame is the primary features or factors. So if somebody suspects that they have binge eating disorder, or something along that spectrum. You spoke to the kind of multidisciplinary approach, but, and of course we always, you know, remind people that if they're in, you know, trouble and need help, that they should seek professional help. But can you just kind of take us through what that process looks like? What are the, some of the exercises that you might recommend or what are some of the things that you question or have the person introspect on? Well, when I'm working with someone, I mean, I, I like to go through what I would call is their blue print of their psychology pertaining to how they approach food and the reasons they select what they select. But also, you know, the, the bigger part backtracking is I like to ask about each family member's relationship. What is your mom's relationship to food? What is your dad's relationship to food, your siblings, et cetera, and learning about their upbringing because so much of our upbringing, our culture is correlated into how we approach food and body. And if, you know, we, we were put on a diet at a young age and we've been guilted and shamed pertaining to ver various food choices that were considered forbidden and taboo in our house, that shapes every person that makes the choices that they do. So I really like to explore what their upbringing was like and, and also you know, what, what beliefs do they have centered around food? Because diet culture impacts each and every one of us. It's something we hear about day in and day out, whether it's through our friend, our family, our teacher, going on the computer, social media, we're bombarded with messages. And unfortunately, many of them are not valid. And that feeds into our confidence and belief system about our worthiness based on our appearance, the choices we make. I have failed because 
I'm not eating X, Y, and Z. So I really like to be able to, you know, hear what each person's belief system is in addition to food rules they have and they practice because a lot of my job is to clarify misconceptions that they have centered around carbohydrates, proteins, fats, versus them feeling that they have to be a human calculator as, you know, the example I always like to give is when we were babies and small children, and you think of a baby, a baby's not going to be afraid that the boob won't be there again. I better continue nursing because I won't be able to nurse later. It's like we were all intuitive eaters of being able to eat when we are hungry and stop when we're satiated. But slowly through the aging process, we become more and more disconnected to stop paying attention to our body's hunger and fullness signals, whether we're picking up messages from family members or the medical community or trauma that we've gone through. And diet culture. This influences how each person approaches any choice they're going to make. For me, Adrian, I go through so much of how they approach life and food now and what their earlier years have contributed to. And when you're you know, speaking about, I mean, it's not like a one, two, three, oh, try these exercises and you're on your way. I mean, I have people in my practice for years. I mean, I'm like a part of a fit, many families because again, I want individuals to feel like they can go to a restaurant or order takeout or travel or what have you, as opposed to, nope, I can only eat this amount of this, this amount of that. It has to be plain. And I mean, because again, any kind of diet has a short-term outcome. I mean, if, if a person was told, you know, if they had, you know, cancer and their oncologist said, this chemotherapy medication is only 5% effective. Like, would you take it? I know I wouldn't. And that, and actually, I mean, that's what diet culture and, and the dining industry is. I mean, the research shows that anytime a person goes on a diet, they might keep weight off for you know, a few years, but that weight will come back and then some. I mean, I want clients to succeed versus feeling, okay, I can only do this for a short amount of time. And it's really being able to have that full life. Yeah. I mean, there's so much to unpack in what you just said. I don't even know where to begin because it is, and it, it, this is really a complicated issue. I think, you know, one of the things that kind of resonated is this concept of like balance, you know, and we, I think by human nature, it's easier to kind of be at the extremes in some ways at the, you know, polar ends than really navigate that middle line, whether or not you're talking about eating disorders or not, or whether you're talking about really anything, relationships or education. I mean, there's so many different examples and ways that this can go. So I agree with you there, but I wanted to touch on this concept of intuitive eating and pick your brain a little bit because there is a culture or there is a narrative that people have around negative belief systems around food, but there's also a lot of positive belief systems around food, right? Food is also, like you said, community or ritual or religion. There are all of these positive associations with food. And so I'm interested in kind of how do you navigate that concept of food is love, right? And somebody may come and tell you, I don't have an issue with food, right? I eat because I enjoy food. And if I follow my intuition, you know, it feels good when I consume chocolate, for example, right? So there's, of course, all that dopamine response to these foods, right? So you get this feeling of reward. How do you, and I know there's so many questions in this, but how do you tease out kind of that habitualness of consuming, which can lead to overconsumption, right? How do you reckon with that in terms of intuitive eating? I think the long-term goal is to feel like I can be 
carefree, eat what I want, not feel guilt or shame or second guess or question what I had, especially when, you know, we talk about families and I'm Jewish and, you know, when my dad was alive, he, his whole thing was like, go big or go home. So, you know, if my mom was having a dinner, there's always left, you know, always extra desserts, always because that's what we do want to have just the abundance. So, you know, whether it's like a Shabbat dinner or, you know, no ruse, like that's fun. It's like what you do, like it would be not pleasurable to go somewhere like I'm hungry. I, you know, filled up that I'm not emotionally satisfied. So being able to explore, like sometimes we eat because it feels good and it takes us back to a happy time in our life. Like that's normal to do. Where it becomes a problem is when it becomes a reoccurring coping mechanism. Like when you said the habitual part, many people are habitual. And especially in the last year of the pandemic, you know, fortunately, like you and I, we have a schedule with, we're seeing our patients, you know, throughout the day, whereas I've had many clients that either they're not working or they're now homeschooling their kids and that becomes their job. And the routine definitely affects their, has a direct impact on their, on their food and their diet. Their routine. And like I was asking someone this morning, because she was telling me, oh, I woke up at four o'clock. I had a banana and then I had my breakfast. I said, were you hungry? And she said, that's a really good question. I don't know. I just wake up and I always have the bananas. I've never thought of that if I'm hungry. So if a person's hungry and when they're eating or why they're eating, oftentimes I see light bulbs go like, huh, that's a, that's a good point. So I think to be able, there are so many questions that I ask each person to be able to help them feel confident about, yes, you know what? I'm going to my family's Friday night. We sit around the table for hours and we're chatting, we're eating, we're having dessert and tea and coffee, whatever. Am I hungry at that point? No, it's like what we do, but you know what? I look forward to it. And it's learning how to create boundaries and limits with not only honoring what their body's telling them, maybe the person's having, you know, a half of the piece of cake versus all the cake because they just want to get the taste. And it's about the experience. Like, this is what we do on Friday nights. So I, I think it's it's really important to be able to look at when, when we become intuitive. It's like, it's a lot of work to get back to that place, but it's the practice with anything. Like being a college tennis player, say, you know, I didn't develop my wicked forehand cross court overnight. It was years and years of tennis lessons and hitting against the back wall and the ball machine. So my point is it's the repetition and the practice of being able to say, you know what? I know every Friday night we meet for dinner and it's many courses and the food sits on the table and it's easy to just sit and mindlessly grab something to be able to even take a few moments within yourself to be able to think about like, you know, a little check-in is what I would say. How am I feeling? Where am I at? Am I wanting a different taste in my mouth? Is it a craving? Is this a different dessert or food choice that I haven't seen or I've missed in a while? There's so many factors contributing to how and why a person mindlessly eats or socially eats and such. So I don't know if I answered all your questions. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, sometimes there, there can be a pushback to that, right? That for example, my personal ritual, and I have a lot of patients who, you know, maybe they're empty nesters or they're older, right? Their kids are out. And so their ritual with their husband is to go out to eat, you know, on a nightly basis. So it's not even just the once a week, you know, 
retreat. And, and at the same time, they might be kind of, and I want to know what your impression is of the word trigger or trigger foods, but maybe by being out, they're tempted repeatedly by sweets or desserts that are accessible to them now because they're out. Maybe they don't keep it in the home. How do you tease that out, right? Because I think someone can still say, you know, this is not an emotional piece. This is not a, you know, it's not driven by emotion. It is driven by the habitual pattern of their personal routine. Well, when you said, you know, empty nesters, they go out, I listen to many of my clients that have felt like I'm leaving my house now over the pandemic and we're out for dinner every night. I've now started seeing friends. Like I was listening to someone the other day who told me, you know, a few days a week, she has Rami Q, she has Mahjong and she's going, and it's in a different person's house and, you know, the different snacks and the food. And I had said, were you hungry? She says, no, but it was so great to like be with people, everyone's snacking and thoughts. So sometimes we become like a, you know, chameleon. We see what other people are doing. It's like, well, you know, the fear of missing out, like felt like, you know, yeah, I want to have some pistachios and I'm going to, you know, grab the the lavash to do it. Or as you're speaking about the accessibility and not everyone has accessibility, but for those that do with, when they're fortunate to be able to go out to know they can order dessert, I think it's saying, well, is this something that's like so delicious and special to me? Because my whole thing is like, don't settle for breadcrumb. If it's not amazing, if it's not something that you're like, you know what, Robin, I've really craved like, you know, my friends ship me this chocolate from Switzerland. Amazing. It's not, yeah, there's a lot of great chocolate stores in Beverly Hills and places, but also knowing where it's, there's that symbolicness, like, oh, my friend thought of me on her trip. And this is like from that country. So it's so authentic to be able to say, look, we're always going to have temptation, but I think also to be able to look at, am I eating it because it's there? Am I eating it because I'm bored? Am I eating it because I'm afraid I won't be given another opportunity to have this again? Or this is my last opportunity? Like, where is it coming from? Yeah, I have a similar mantra, I think, which is make it matter, right? Like the eating chips on a couch maybe doesn't matter. That's mindless. But that enjoyable meal with your husband or, you know, the Friday night to your previous example matters. So like making it matter. And another thing that you brought up that I actually talk about in my book that's coming out this month, Hungry for More, is this concept of, I mean, the word that I think of is restriction and scarcity, but it tied into your comment about FOMO and how we respond to like free food at the supermarket or like the Costco, right? Or how we respond to buffets when people see this in front of them, there's almost this like fear or this compulsion to take advantage as if it's like the last time that they will see it, right? And not really thinking about it, do they want that hot dog in a bun at Costco, but just the availability of it the, and the feeling that they'll miss out if they don't take advantage. Well, actually the, the research shows that individuals that grow up around food scarcity are more likely to struggle with binging disorder as adults. So, you know, when you say that, you're so, you know, I can relate to the Costco example in places with samples, but I haven't been anywhere where there's samples now. I don't even know what's happening with that. But I do remember when the pandemic first started and you see the empty shelves in the stores and no toilet paper and Purell. First time ever in my life that I became a hoarder. I was like, I have to buy all those yogurts because I see my flavor is not any, it's like you get in this state of panic 
because I mean, and now, you know, my husband and I are talking, like I have all these vacuum sealed bags of rice and, candy, and beans right? and we're going through them now, you know, I'm like, cause oh, you haven't used the rice cooker over here. I'm like, no, you know, this is easy. I'm throwing it in the microwave, but yes, it's true. I, you know, I'm a little tuna fished out, you know, from all my cans of tuna, but yeah, first time I ever felt like I got to get it because you may not have access. So I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about body dysmorphia and, and dysmorphic disorders and, and particularly because the data is so strong in how early it starts in children as early as like six-year-olds. Can you talk a little bit about your experience with that, different types of people that you see and what are your thoughts? I mean, in my practice, I see kids and their families starting at the age of six. So all ages, all genders. And I mean, I think part of, you know, you're discussing dysmorphia or this fixation oftentimes is the comparison to your friend. Oh, you know, I see my friends. I was listening to a kid the other week that I was seeing and she's talking about, she's comparing, now she's at school, she's comparing her fingers to her friend's fingers. And my fingers don't look like her. And I'm seeing, well, now I understand why my legs look different from hers. And it's really, I think oftentimes any kind of dysmorphia can oftentimes be derived for a child derived from their parents that haven't resolved their own body image issues. And they hear the parent or parents talking about what they don't like about their body and body checking and, oh, my nose is so big. And, you know, I just, I I hate this double chin. I'm on Zoom all day. And kids are a lot more savvy and sophisticated than when you and I were kids. I mean, they're like pliable sponges. They soak up every message. And, you know, we, of course, we always throw the mothers under the bus, right? Because as mothers, that's, you know, where we go, but it doesn't even have to be the family, right? This is, it is so ubiquitous, but also, I mean, we always blame social media, but the truth is I remember growing up, you know, it was teen magazine that made me start feeling twitchy, you know, like compared comparing myself to images in teen magazine, but now it's like everywhere, everywhere, everywhere. And kids have access to it million times a day. How do you, I mean, this is, this is, you know, a question of boundaries, of course, but how do you manage that when it is, when kids are so inundated, not just by maybe their parents you know, his narrative, but just societal narrative. Well, it's hard because it's everywhere in society. And I've had a number of clients that are on social media that are old enough to be, they are unfollowing accounts that can be activating slash triggering for them. They, you know, their parents have put, you, you probably know the term better than I, they have like a cap on how much time they have access to with being on their phones or different programs. I mean, I guess those apps have really come a long way too with boundaries in regards to that. But also it's really important to have role models in your life that if you were to say, you know, I was listening to someone who's telling me her fourth grade teacher, you know, has been her role model. She's in seventh or eighth grade. And I asked her the reason, how come this teacher is your role model? She's really nice. She's really smart. All, all the qualities. It was never like, because she has a flat stomach or her butts, the right. It was nothing physical. It was all these qualities. So That's such a good strategy. I like that. 
certainly, but also to my adult clients. And, you know, we, we talk about, and this, you know, helps them with their kids is being able to speak to someone you truly love. Like how would your hundred year old self speak to you? The way you're condemning your appearance or nitpicking apart physical parts of yourself. Would you speak that way to your child? Would you speak that way to your, your dog? Absolutely not. Absolutely a good point that I always bring up too. If you're not going to say it to your friend, then, you know, your best friend, then you probably shouldn't be saying it to yourself. So the last thing I kind of want to hit on is there's this article that stands in my mind that I can't, I wish I had it, but maybe like nine years ago, I was training for the marathon. And so I used to get runner's magazine. And I remember this article that was comparing like healthy eating and runners to like disordered eating. And they were comparing these two concepts and were making the point that a good proportion of athletes had disordered type eating. But then the counter to that was that it's not disordered type eating. They eat a certain way because they're competitive or, you know, for their craft or for their sport. Another one of those kind of fine lines, you know, and I wonder how, what your response to that is. How do you kind of reconcile that, that it is restrictive, that it is narrow, that it is focusing on certain food groups, but to their defense, it's in service of their craft or their work or their hobby. Well, if you're, if you're a female and you're losing your menstruation, then in addition to the high amounts of movement they're doing, their diet would want to be reevaluated for- So those are the, the more extreme cases, of course. Yes. I think, look, I was a division two tennis player in college, and then I was a triathlete for six years. And I remember when I stopped the triathlons, I thought there's a lot of issues in this sport, you know, hearing just the culture of what people eat, what they don't eat. And it was more just like a personal goal, but it it became when a person is speaking about like, no, no, I can't eat here because it's such and such, like they're not flexible, adaptable, able to go with the flow. Again, that's a toss up too. I, I think there is positive sports nutrition, but learning how to approach it. Like I have colleagues that are eating disorder registered dietitians and they help athletes be able to be the best they can be, be able to be their optimal without having disordered eating, thinking, and rigidity and rules. What it really comes down to is how you hold it in mind. You know, I think two people can be eating the same plate of food and one person can approach it from a place of like abundance, health, nourishment, and another person can be approaching it from this perspective of like restriction. And I think just that nuance really matters in your relationship with the food. So it's interesting. I mean, something that, you know, I think about all the time and as a physician who specializes in weight loss, right? Nutrition and weight loss, I've kind of really started to incorporate the understanding of the underlying hungers, you know, from where I used to be trained, which was really just medications and, you know, dietary approaches, which I still believe in, but really incorporating, you know, what is that underlying hunger? And it's so interesting that when people come in with this desire to lose weight, um, you can unpack in every instance, the underlying, you know, drive, whether it's a hunger for self-acceptance or a hunger for autonomy or hunger for, right. I mean, there's so many, 
I think there's about 30 that I talk about in 30 chapters that I talk about, but it definitely is a universal human experience. Yeah, it's true. That's a whole other episode. It's true. hundred percent. I'm so glad you came and shared your expertise. And I wanted you to just highlight once again, your recent book. Um, we will put a, a link to it in the show notes, but can you just talk about that a little bit? Sure. So my book is called The Eating Disorder Trap, A Guide for Clinicians and Loved Ones. And it was written for basically what all healthcare providers are not trained in and being able to help support a person that struggles with any kind of eating disorder or someone that's been entrenched in diet culture. And it's nice because you don't have to be a clinician in the field. You could be a parent or a coach or a religious person to understand it. So it was written in a very simplistic manner. And really, there haven't been enough resources in my book. And I have included, it comes from a non-gender conforming perspective, a, a colleague of mine who is transgender, they went through my manuscript to make sure that everything is written in gender affirming pronouns. I have illustrations that encompass all body shapes and sizes. It's directed from what's called a Hayes perspective, health at every size. And and really, I think this is just a starting point for families and all ancillary healthcare providers and anyone involved with someone that they feel like might be struggling to be able to have this as a resource. And then I also have a podcast too. It's called the Eating Disorder Trap Podcast. And each episode is 15 to 25 minutes, all with clinicians in the eating disorder arena body positive field. And I have different topics that feel like can be certainly helpful to those that are struggling or those that want to help someone that is struggling. And so that probably be found on your, on your website. So go ahead and give us that. Also. Yeah. So I do. So my book website, which also includes my podcast is the eating disorder trap.com. And my private practice website is askaboutfood.com. They link together, but um, yes, those are there. And, and I can also be found on Instagram. Robin with a Y Goldberg RDN and Twitter Robin with a Y RDN. Wonderful. Thanks again for joining me. I appreciated having you. Thank you so much, Adrian. It was great. This episode of Health Bite is sponsored by Dell Nutrition, a line of functional nutrition bars and supplements I have personally curated to enhance health and well-being. You can find out more at DellNutrition.com. As always, thank you so much for listening. I love having you with me and sharing these conversations with you. I hope that you have taken away a health bite, a small actionable step that you can implement in your life to help improve your own health and well-being. If you want to know more about me or get more inspiration, please follow me on Instagram at Dr. Adrian Udeem. You can also join me on my website at dradrianudeem.com. And look out for my book coming up, Hungry for More, a blend of story and science to inspire weight loss and well-being. Lots of good tidbits and actionable health bites that I'm super excited to share. Talk to you again next week.